Okay, welcome to Church History for Dummies. Let's uh, open with prayer and then we'll have to do a little bit of uh, housekeeping stuff and then we'll get started. Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy that you've shown to us in giving us your son and giving us your spirit. And so we pray on Pentecost Sunday, your spirit would come in this class that he would teach us. We acknowledge our dependence upon the Holy Spirit, and so help us to learn and to be changed and to be transformed. Uh, Guide our discussion. We pray in accordance with your word that the Spirit would guide us into all truth, and we trust you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you didn't happen to sign up and I don't have your name or email, let's pass this around in case something comes up and a class gets canceled. Uh, I can email you. Also, and I'm going to pass out some notes here. There's not going to be a lot of extensive notes, but if you want to write something down, you can pass these notes back. Uh, Speaking of emailing you about there being no class, there will be no class on June 30th and July 7th because I have a date with the Big Cat Burger at Heim Barbecue in Fort Worth, Texas. I'm going to go to Texas with a few of my kids and Oklahoma to see my family. So I will not be here on June 30th or July 7th, so there will be no class. Uh, if you ever show up and for some reason we couldn't get in touch with you and the class is canceled, you can always uh, go down to the chapel and there's a 6 p.m. evening service. So as we begin, um, I'm thinking of one of my favorite movies growing up called Fast Times at Ridgemont High. If you ever saw that, if you're... Uh, a kid of the 80s, and there's this scene where Mr. Hand, this history teacher, is teaching, and uh, this student named Spicoli, this surfer dude, comes in late, and Mr. Hand asks him, why are you late? Why are you wasting my time? And this surfer dude just kind of looks at Mr. Hand, and he says, I don't know. And Mr. Hand just looks at him, and then... Mr. Hand goes to the blackboard and he writes on the blackboard, I don't know. And then he just looks at it. And then he says to Spicoli, I like that. I don't know. And then Mr. Hand says to Spicoli, Mr. Hand, am I going to pass this history class? Gee, I don't know, Mr. Spicoli. And he says, I like these words. I'm going to leave them up there all semester for everyone to see. So these words, I'm not going to leave them up there all semester because I'm going to erase them right now. But these words are words that you're going to hear me say many times in this class. You're going to hear me say, I don't know. (laughs) And I'm okay with that. I'm not a church historian. I love church history. I have read a lot of church history. I read a lot of church history. I'm interested in it. I've taken many classes at the college and seminary level, but I'm not a church historian. I'm an aging man, and nobody told me that what I learned in college and seminary, I would begin losing it later in life. (laughs) And so I've lost a lot of things that I remember. So if you ask questions of me, I may say, I don't know. Maybe somebody else can answer it, or you can email me, and we'll try to get the answer. Uh, I am indebted to uh, people who have taught me things about church history, so anything that I'm sharing with you, I've just gathered from these guys. 
most of all, Dr. Jeffrey Bingham at Dallas Seminary. He's now at Southwestern uh, Seminary in Fort Worth as the interim president there. But I'm indebted to Dr. Jeffrey Bingham. It was just a paradigm shift taking his classes at Dallas Seminary. I'm indebted to Dr. Glenn Kreider from Dallas Seminary. I'm indebted to Dr. Eric Hartman. Uh, from Dallas Seminary, all people that I learned theology and I learned church history from. I'm also indebted to go back and further into college to Dr. William Bell at Dallas Baptist University. So I'm standing on the shoulders of these giants and anything that I share with you that has some value, I just stole it from them. So I'm just letting you know right now. <laughs> Why study church history? And I'm just going to be reading from a manuscript in my notes uh, because my brain doesn't work like it used to. So bear with me, and I'll try to make this as engaging as you can. And if you have questions, raise your hands if you have comments or something. But why study church history? Because history can put our beliefs into proper perspective. Because every generation is tempted to view itself as the best generation, the brightest generation, the most insightful generation... Each generation in the church is tempted to see its way of worship, its way of spirituality, its way of doing church, its way of doing ministry as the most biblical and the most practical. And so studying church history will cure us of what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. History reminds us that actions and ideas have consequences, not only for our generation, but also for generations to come. What we believe, and what we teach, and what we preach to others, and what we practice affects future generations. And so we shouldn't act impulsively or act quickly. We shouldn't teach things quickly. We must employ caution. We must examine ourselves. History keeps us from taking ourselves too seriously as if we had all the right answers. But history also helps us take ourselves seriously because what we think and do will affect future generations. So history can give us new ideas and new ways of thinking, new old ways of thinking, new examples of Practice that may be biblical, but we've just never been exposed to them. For instance, the medieval church. Have you been exposed to the practices of the medieval church? They practice things. It's kind of this order of prayer and Bible that they called Lectio Divina, where they would read the Bible very slowly and think about every word that they were reading, and they would concentrate on it. And then they would move to Lectio Meditatio, where they would then kind of utter with their mouth and, and murmur the words of Scripture, and they would read Bible verses very slowly slowly and say them out loud and then that would lead them to Lectio Oratatio which was prayer. So they kind of used this process, the medieval church and monks in the medieval period had this process where they thought long and hard about what they were reading and they would say it out loud and then they would turn it into prayer. And so that's an old way to do Christianity, to do spirituality but it might be new to you when you're exposed to what they have to teach. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones said this about studying church history. He said, the greatest tonic 
to a drooping spirit is studying church history, reading church history, being exposed to new examples of practice that may be biblical, but we've never been exposed to them. And so our brothers in Christ that have come, brothers and sisters in Christ who have come before us, were indwelt with the same spirit, and they have left us this rich inheritance that we can study. So if you've got a drooping spirit, you're weighed down about our culture, you're weighed down about what's happening in America and around the world, studying church history can lift your spirits because you can begin to see what God was doing in previous times. You can study about uh, the early church councils and, see, and, and begin to, to think, my goodness, you had churches and pastors coming from all over, coming together and agreeing on core doctrine. If you want to see unity in the churches, you can church history, study church history and see that. You can study the Reformation and say, God, let there be a revival like the Reformation. Uh, you can study the First Great Awakening and, and see what God was doing in America in the early stages of our country. You can study the late 60s and the late 70s and see that God worked in a culture at a time very much like what we're experiencing now. The drug revolution, people angry with the government because of Vietnam. You've got um, Roe v. Wade coming soon. You've got the sexual revolution, the, the, the freedom and the expression, the revolution of, of women finding their identity and freedom. All of these issues are coming up when you study how God moved through his people in church history. It can actually lift your spirits because you can say, he might do it again. So let me read a verse to you real quick before we begin. We see this in Habakkuk 3.2 where there's this remembrance of God Hearing ways that God has worked in the past and then praying for that to happen. Habakkuk 3.2 says, A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to the Shagayanoth. He says, O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. So as we study church history, we can be saying, God, we've heard how you worked and moved in your church and through your people. Would you do it again? You obviously did it in hard and difficult times. Might you do it again? And I think he will. Two questions come to mind as we embark on a study of church history. Number one is why does doctrine develop? What is happening in the churches? What books, if you will, were being published that caused doctrine and theology to, to develop? What worship songs, what hymns were being sung that may or may not have been accurate and biblical that were changing the way people viewed God? So what was happening? Why does doctrine develop? And number two, how does it develop? How does doctrine develop uh, in, throughout church history. What forces cause its development? There are, are councils that we're going to learn about. There's creeds that we're going to learn about. And so two basic questions at the beginning. How and why is doctrine developing? How did the doctrine of the Trinity develop? Now we know the Trinity is there in Scripture. The word Trinity never occurs. But as we read Scripture, we come to understand that there is one God... Eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. But that phrase, one God eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that doesn't occur in Scripture, does it? How does that 
develop? How does the doctrine of the Trinity develop? What forces caused the early church to formulate what they believed about the Trinity? Why did the church gather in 325 A.D. at the Council of Nicaea? Why did they gather then? to discuss and kind of develop this fundamental and formal doctrine of the Trinity and to talk about uh, the relationship that Jesus the Son has with the Father, that He has the same essence, same nature, is equal with the Father. What was happening in the churches of the day that led up to this council in 325 A.D.? Why did it not happen before? Why didn't it happen in 125 A.D.? That's things we're going to look at. Why do they then come back again in 381 A.D., again at uh, Constantinople, and talk more about the Son and the Father, but then add more about the Holy Spirit? And then why do they then in 451 A.D. come back one more time at Chalcedon? And why do they talk about the humanity and deity of Jesus, the person of Jesus. What was happening in these moments that led up to these councils? So that's what we're going to be looking at. What books were being written? Who were the popular preachers? What podcasts were being downloaded? What books were being written that people were talking about? What study guides? These are the things we're going to look at that lead up to these uh, key moments in uh, church history. So... This is a class, then, on the development of doctrine, the development of theology. And what we mean by doctrine, when I say doctrine, when I say theology, what I'm really just talking about is faith, what we believe. Church history is the history of faith, the history of our faith, the history of our beliefs. And so the question then becomes, what do you believe? What do you believe about God? When's the last time someone asked you that question? What do you believe about God? What do you believe about Christ? What do you believe about angels? What do you believe about the future? What do you believe about humanity? What do you believe about sin? What do you believe about salvation? What do you believe? That's all we're interested in this class. What do we believe as Christians. That's all we mean by those words. Theology and doctrine. And I'll use these two interchangeably. That's all we mean by theology and doctrine. It's faith, belief. And if those two words kind of bore you, then you need the help of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost to help you see that these are very important words. And I hope you come to love them. Because those two words are about faith. Those, and faith is a part of those three great Christian virtues that we hold up. What? The three remain. Faith, hope, and love. All that theology is and all that doctrine is can be defined by the word faith. Christian, what do you believe? And so this is a class on the history and the development of the Christian faith. The Christian faith has a history to it, right? We're not the originators of this, are we? We didn't come up with this. 
we are new characters. Okay, we are uh, just kind of coming. It's kind of like a scene, a series on Netflix. You kind of get to season three, and they introduce these new characters. That's kind of how we come on the scene of church history. Church history has been going for a long time, and we're on season. I don't know, 2,000-something? And we're new characters. A bunch of people have died off. Key characters have come and gone and died, and they're part of the story, but we're kind of the new characters that they've added in season 2,000. We've just come on the scene. The sad thing, I think, is that we have been deceived into thinking that because we're on the scene now, and because we feel like... um, We're new to this. We're new characters. We tend, and we've been deceived into thinking, that when we read the Bible, when we pick up a copy of God's Word, I think we tend to think sometimes that we are unfazed by outside sources. Like, I think sometimes we think, whether we admit it or not, that we read the Bible in a sanitized room with hospital scrubs on, A mask over our nose and mouth. Our hands and elbows are scrubbed clean. We we walk into a room and a nurse holds out those latex gloves and pop, we put them on. And then we get those little booties that go over our shoes. And then we pick up Holy Scripture with sanitized hands and hearts. And nothing infects the way that we read Scripture. Right? Because everybody knows that the American evangelical in the 21st century is the best doggone interpreter of scripture there is, right? Everybody knows that evangelicals in the 21st century, especially in America, are the best doggone interpreters of scripture that have ever been. We believe that we read the Bible objectively and purely and without any inside influence, right? And so one major goal of this class is to make us critically aware of our propensity to believe that when we pick up the Bible, we are the best interpreters. And we read it purely and we bring no outside influences to the text. To believe that is a myth. We always read the Bible Influenced and affected by those who have gone before us. Those brothers and sisters in Christ who have gone before us and who were indwelt by the same Holy Spirit, they have actually left us helpful, correct ways of understanding the Bible. They have left us parameters to stay in when we read the Bible. And some of those parameters are the creeds of the early church and the councils. These are the parameters that they tell us to stay in. You can stay in this circle. When you talk about God, you have to stay within that parameter. You can't jump out like Arius did leading up to what was happening at Nicene. You can't jump out and start saying things about God that are not true, that are not in his word. And so we're going to see that originality is not always best. We tend to think what? The new is always best. The new iPhone is always best, right? Got to get the new iPhone. The current is always best. The current worship songs are always the best. What's Chris Tomlin going to come up with next year? I can't wait because the new is always the best. We tend to think this way, and it's why we need 
desperately need church history because people have gone before us and they have things to say to us modern, smartphone-addicted, binge-watching, organic-only people. You see, we are locked into and unable to shake the 21st century. The 21st century is what we know. And the danger comes when we limit ourselves to our time only. Because our century determines what we believe when we stay in our century. We don't believe like a 5th century Christian because we didn't live then. Our historicity shapes what we believe, how we read the Bible, and the way that we worship. And so Christians in the 22nd century will do some things like we do. But I guarantee you, they will do a lot of things differently. And they, like us, will say that they're just reading the Bible. And that you and I were doing it wrong. They'll look back on us and we won't be able to defend ourselves. That's what stinks about the whole process. Is that Christians in the 22nd century are going to look back on us and tell us and think about us. They did it wrong, but we can't defend ourselves, can we? And so they're going to look back on us and they're going to say things like, Why couldn't they see it? Why couldn't they worship the way we do now? Why were they doing worship like that? And look at their music. Have you all seen the music of the 21st century? Hillsong this, Hillsong that, Chris Tomlin this, Chris Tomlin that. Do they know just how white their worship was? Gosh, how could people sing those songs Sunday after Sunday? They were so repetitive. And look at the books that they were reading. Gosh, they were always on Facebook. Those are hard words for an American evangelical to hear because we are of the generation that believes that we have it right. We've mastered preaching, right? We've mastered worship. We have a whole industry, a whole complex on worship. And so we are locked into this time in history, and it influences everything that we do. And that's why we need to go back in time and see how our forefathers in the faith viewed the world, how they viewed preaching, how they viewed worship, how they viewed church. And we're going to see a lot of weird people through our study of church history. That excites me. I like weird people. (laughs) We'll wonder what they saw in Scripture, why they worshiped the way they did How could they think like that? But what we do not want to do when we look back is criticize them. It doesn't do any good to criticize a dead person. Because they're dead. They can't change, can they? It doesn't do any good to criticize a dead theologian. Because they can't change. They're dead. But we can change. We can still change. Criticism is supposed to bring change, but it doesn't do any good to try and change a corpse. So what we want to do is use them as mirrors on ourselves so that we see features in them that are like us and we discover that we are no different than them. We may be 21st century Christians, but they were 16th century Christians. We may be 21st century, but they are 5th century. They thought they were reading the Bible objectively. And we think we're reading the Bible objectively. But both of us are locked into a particular moment and a particular culture in history. And we want to use them to examine ourselves because we are still alive and we can still change. 
So this is all by way of foundation, introduction, just building to where we're going so that we can see what we're seeing. How did their reading of scripture lead to this practice or to that practice? Why did some people read their Bible and baptize their babies? Why did they come to a particular view of the end times? Why did Martin Luther have one view of the Lord's Supper, one view of communion, and John Calvin have a different view? Why was part of John Calvin's salary that he was paid with barrels of wine? I want to know. (laughs) This is what we can pay you, John. And by the way, part of the salary package is you get, I think it was like 250 gallons of wine a year. That was part of his salary. I want to know why. For communion. For communion. (laughs) Yes. I want to know, why did Jonathan Edwards wear a powdered wig and knickers? I want to know, why did Jonathan Edwards buy, purchase, and own slaves? How are they understanding what they are reading in God's word when they're reading it? Because you see, the Bible has always been in every pulpit. It has always been about how people are reading it. The Bible's always been in every pulpit, but it's about how are people reading it? How are they understanding it? The issue isn't if people are reading their Bibles, especially once since the printing press made them available. The issue isn't if people are reading their Bibles. The issue has always been how are they reading it? What are they seeing there? And why are they seeing it? So the history of the church is the history of interpretation, the interpretation of the Bible. Everyone has always been uh, basing Christianity on the Bible. Everyone always has had a proof text or example from the Bible. Everyone's got a chapter and verse. You have a chapter and a verse for what you believe about a particular topic. You have a chapter and verse about the end times. Why and when you think Jesus is coming back. You have a chapter and verse for every belief of yours. So the history of the church is the history of the interpretation of Scripture. And every generation has its own way of reading the Scriptures, and every generation has its own blind spots, right? Every culture has its own way of reading the Bible. Trust me, a believer in Syria... A believer in Nigeria right now where Christians are martyred, where Christians are imprisoned, they, I guarantee you, they read the book of Revelation differently than we do in relatively safe America. They read the Bible in Nigeria, they read the Bible in Syria, and they can come to the conclusion that they are in the Great Tribulation. Because Christians are being martyred and slaughtered left and right. So they read the Bible differently than we do. So how we read the Bible is important. Let me tell you how I read the Bible, because some of you were wondering. Some of you got up this morning and you thought, I wonder how Pastor Benji reads the Bible. (laughs) I'm going to give you your answer today. I read the Bible as a white, 47-year-old evangelical, I put that in quotes because I really don't like 
what it's become. But I'll, I'll, I'll play with it for right now. I'll be nice. I read the Bible as a white, 47-year-old evangelical male from Texas. That's the lens through which I read the Bible. That's how I read the Bible. When I pick up the Bible, that's how I read it. Now you know how I read the Bible. Therefore, I have absolutely no optimism for private, individualized Bible reading. Let me say that again because I'm not sure that you heard me. I have no optimism for private, individualized Bible reading. Now, some of you are like, what? So please don't leave and say, Pastor Benji said we should never read the Bible on our own. (laughs) I do not mean that you should not read your Bible. I told you in the sermon this morning, you need to read your Bible. If you want to guard your heart, you need to read your Bible. Please read your Bible. Everybody understand, I am telling you, read your Bible by yourself. With a cup of coffee or whatever you do, read your Bible. Just be careful. Because you might come up with a wacky interpretation of a particular passage all on your own. I only have optimism in the Christian community reading scripture together. I only have optimism for the church local and the church in history reading the Bible together. For example, I had two friends in college who were reading the book of Revelation. And they came to me one day and they said, we think we're the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11. And I said, no, you're not. And they really believed that they were. They needed community. Not just two people in community. They needed a local church with godly elders and pastors and leaders. And they needed the community of church history. So, let me ask you. Can you recall any passages in the New Testament or the Old Testament in the Bible where we have people reading scripture in community together? Anybody off the top of your head recall anything? Where in the Bible? Not a trick question, okay? Not a, listen, not a trick question. I remember it was Ezra and Nehemiah in the rain. Yeah. Nehemiah 8, Ezra's reading. They despair when they hear the law, and then yeah. the leaders come in, and it says they gave them the sense, they explained it. Listen, that's what I had there. Um, when the law was given yeah. in Exodus? Yes, they're reading that, right? Absolutely. Any other places, Mike? Uh, Ethiopian on the road to. Yeah. Something. Yeah. Reading scripture together. Anybody else? There's, there's a lot, Mike. Jesus opens up the scroll of Isaiah. Jesus opened up the scroll of Isaiah. They read the scriptures in synagogue because they didn't have individual copies of it, did they? You had to go to the synagogue if you wanted to hear God's word read. So you couldn't really come up with a wacky interpretation on your own drinking coffee on your porch. You might leave the synagogue and come up with a wacky interpretation, but Jesus is reading scripture there. What about Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council? What do we do with these Gentiles? That are coming in to the kingdom. How do we handle that? They get together and they quote Joel. We've got uh, Acts 17. The Bereans. Hmm. We're not sure what you're saying is true, Paul. We better check it with the scriptures. We're going to read together and make sure what you're saying is correct. They were noble, Timothy tells us. Because they studied the scriptures and wanted to make sure. Uh, We have the famous example in Acts chapter 18. 
of the husband-wife duo, Priscilla and Aquila, right? They come alongside Apollos and say, huh, you're off a little bit there. The reading scripture in community, we have 1 Timothy 4.13, where Paul says, devote yourself to the what? Reading of scripture. Anybody know? What word does he use? Devote yourself to the public reading of scripture. Read the Bible on your own if you want to, Timothy. Make sure you're reading it publicly together in the community. Uh, Colossians 4.16, 1 Thessalonians 5.27, other examples. Uh, 2 Kings 22, when Hilkiah finds the law, which is probably the book of Deuteronomy, reads it, gives it to uh, King Josiah. They start reading it, saying we've got to change our ways. Here's another one I thought of this afternoon as I was thinking of this. Genesis chapter 3. We have two people in community, Adam and Eve. And then there comes along this talking snake who starts asking questions, right? He comes up with a wacky interpretation of what God said, didn't he? Did God really say? They should have looked at each other in community and said, no, you're wrong. So, for example, Walter. Yeah. Among yours and among you. Yes. Where they go back and forth. Right. That kind of like, they go back and forth reading. It's supposed to be the whole congregation. Either. Yeah. They're, they're reciting scripture back and forth. It, it always reminded me of the uh, less filling, tastes great, less filling. Remember <laughs> that old commercial? They're going back and forth reading scripture in community. Great example. Great example. So, I have no optimism in reading scripture exclusively by myself because every time I come to the scriptures, I read with glasses. Not the ones I'm wearing. I read the Bible as a white American male. That is the lens through which I read the Bible. And so this isn't just a class on church history. I lied to you. This is a class on ophthalmology. (laughs) (laughs) Spell it correctly. Close enough? Oh, I think I did. This is a class on ophthalmology, how we read the Bible. It's a, a class on how we all bring two things to the text every time. We bring prejudices. Uh, I did not spell that right. Prejudices and presuppositions to the text. Every time we pick up the Bible, we bring prejudices and we bring presuppositions to it. So this is a class on how we wear glasses when we read the Bible. And so I need to ask you a question then. Can you help me read the Bible outside of my whiteness? Can you help me get beyond the blindness of my whiteness, that I'm a Caucasian? And can you help me see what I might be missing in the Bible? Can you, as a female... My sisters in Christ, can y'all help me read the Bible through your lens as a woman? And not just read it through the lens of a male. Help me to see in this book what my maleness is blinding me to see. Because ladies, you read the Bible differently than men do. I need to go to other Christians... And be willing to say, can you help me read the Bible? I may not agree with you, but can you help me? I need to be cautious, of course, 
you know, I need to be cautious. We need to pray for discernment. But I need people outside of my circles. I like to read outside of my circles. I have to be cautious. But I like to read outside of my circles because I might learn something from someone instead of just staying in this one stream. They may reinforce what I believe after I've read what they believe. I might say that's absolutely incorrect and you just strengthen my belief here. I have no optimism for private Bible reading because I wear glasses. When I read, my optimism lies in the body of Christ where we are indwelt by the same spirit and we've all been gifted for the common good. I need the body of Christ to test and approve and correct and confirm and verify because I may be way off with how I interpret a a verse. So my optimism is not in myself because I, even as a pastor, can be dangerous with the Bible. Church history is littered with people who are dangerous with the Bible. We're going to see that. What led up to all of these creeds and councils is that there were pastors who were dangerous with the Bible and they began influencing a lot of people. In fact, this happened in our own denomination, Converge. If you remember from many years ago, it was happening as, and I, as I was in seminary, open theism was the, the theological buzzword of the time. And there were people, open theism believes that the future is open and that God doesn't infallibly know the future. He doesn't know the end from the beginning. And so proponents of open theism were gaining ground within Christianity and particularly within our own denomination. Greg Boyd, who taught uh, up at uh, Bethel College or Bethel Seminary. And so I know that John Piper, who's a part of our denomination, was challenging him. I think Dwayne, who used to pastor here, I think Pastor Dwayne helped in, in putting some things together to say, what you're saying is outside these parameters. You can't say that God doesn't infallibly know the future because the Bible says he does. But that's how Greg Boyd was reading the Bible and all the people that followed him. So as we go on this journey through church history, we're going to see this truth time and time again. And it's this. You can make this book sing any song you want to. You can make this book sing any song that you want to. Say anything that you want to. If you don't believe me, just turn on your TV and watch the many prosperity preachers butcher this book. You can make the Bible sing any song you want to. You can be dangerous with this book, and so can I. So we are dependent on church history and the church community that has come before us. We're dependent on the tradition We don't like that word doing some circles. Tradition. We are dependent on tradition. That's like a four-letter word in some circles, isn't it? We're dependent on the tradition that has been passed down to us from the apostles and prophets in God's word. But also what they passed down to the early church, to bishops, people that they handpicked to take over from them. And then were then passed on down through church history. So do you know what we need most when we pick up the word of God? Because we can all be dangerous with it. You know what we need most? We need the Holy Spirit, obviously, first, right? But we also need chaperones. We need chaperones when we read the Bible. So my church history professor, Jeff Bingham, 
said it this way. It's on the bottom of your notes. You, he says, you cannot trust me to be a gentleman with scripture on a date by myself, unobserved and unmonitored. You must send a chaperone. Tradition. I don't want a date tradition, but scripture. I am interested in having a relationship with scripture. But in order for it to be fruitful, I have to bring in tradition. Tradition helps me stay in the straight and narrow. So we need a chaperone when we read scripture. We need tradition. We need the community of God where the spirit of God is. We need the traditions that have been passed down to us from the creeds and the councils. Otherwise, we might come up with a crazy idea about God. And this is exactly what happens when Christians isolate themselves from other believers and they pull away from church community. When someone pulls away from church community, their understanding of God and His Word typically gets skewed, doesn't it? We've probably all seen this, haven't you? You probably all know someone who pulled away, quit attending church, and their view of God began to be warped. And they started to say, I don't know if I believe the Bible. I don't know if I believe if the Bible can really address this cultural issue. I don't know if the Bible is right. Rewind five years ago and they would have fought for that truth that the Bible is true and speaks to everything. So we all know that probably all seen people, know people who pull away from the church uh, family, from church community and what happens, they begin thinking differently. They start painting God the way they want him to be. They start molding God into what they want him to be and making scripture say what they want to say. So this is a class on church history. It's a class on ophthalmology, but it's also a class on community, right? But that's part of the problem. We are all here, and we're part of the grace community, right? We're all part of our denomination, Converge. And we're all part of conservative evangelical Christianity in America. And we're all part of the reformed aspect of conservative evangelical Christianity in America. But we're stuck in one century, aren't we? So we can't finally and fully help each other read the Bible because we're all stuck in the same century together reading the Bible with 21st century glasses. I mean, I can find non-white people to help me read the Bible. I can find younger people to help me read the Bible. I can find much older Christians to help me read the Bible. I can find people from other denominations to help me read the Bible. I can find people who have been raised in some other part of the world and in some other culture, and they can help me read the Bible. But they have the same problem that I do. We're all from the 21st century. So... You can't really help me read the Bible. Thanks a lot. I thought y'all were my friends. The problem is that we're all from the 21st century, and that's why we need church history. We need a time machine. We need to get out of our century with believers who are indwelt with the same spirit and read scripture with them. I'll stop here for any questions or comments.
If not, we'll keep moving along again. We're just building a foundation to help us understand church history and understand how the Spirit of God was working through the early church all the way up to the church in the modern era where we find ourselves. Community isn't just about Christians living now. It's also about Christians who have lived before us. Jesus said, is God the God of the living or the dead? Jesus said that Abraham is living even though he's dead. And so our sisters in Christ, our brothers in Christ from the past, they may be dead, but their writings and their ministries and their thoughts that were empowered by the Holy Spirit are still around. We still have access to these things. Part of our problem as 21st century Christians is this. We think that the newest is always the best, right? The newest is always the best. Give me the new iPhone. Give me the new worship song. Give me the new pastor. I hope you don't think that. <laughs> new. We want new. Well, let me ask you, is the Holy Spirit new? We always think the newest book is what we want. The newest worship song and style, the newest preaching. We always think all the new is best, but when did the Spirit come? Before the 21st century, right? The Holy Spirit has been in the church since Pentecost. The same Spirit indwelt them, and the same Spirit indwelt believers in the Old Testament. The Spirit is not new to the scene. The Spirit has been there since Genesis chapter 2, because what did God do after He made Adam? He took the dirt and fashioned him, and then he did what? Wound him up. He breathed the Spirit into him. So the Holy Spirit has been here. Well, if you read Genesis 1, where is the Spirit? He's hovering over this mass before God creates this, this, this whatever it was it looked like. The Spirit, in fact, goes back into eternity past, so the Spirit's not new. The Spirit is not new to the scene. So where's your hope? Is it in your community only? Is it your, your, your hope only in your, your church bodies? Your, your hope only in your particular denomination? Is your hope in your century? If you want access to the Spirit, you can only find the Spirit in the fullness of the church. So you as an individual Christian, at most, maybe have what? Three spiritual gifts? I don't know. I'm just guessing. So you are ill-equipped to be a Christian by yourself, aren't you? You need other Christians. That's why there's all these one another verses. You need community. I need community. And that includes the community of the present and the community of the past. So this is a class on community, not individuality. But really, this class is not a class on church history it's not really a class on ophthalmology. It's not really a class on community. I have lied to you. Shame on me. I'm a pastor. And I not only lied, I lied in church. If you're going to lie, at least get off the church property, right? I've lied in church. This is really a class on iPhone photo albums. What do I mean by that? Well, if I gave you my phone, which... I wouldn't because I'm, I'm an OCD germaphobe. Ask my family. I'm not going to let you put your DNA on my phone. I clean this thing all the time. But if I had a car accident 
And they put me on Vicodin. And I was so loopy from the drugs that I actually let you hold my iPhone. You'd see photos with a whole bunch of albums on them with a lot of pictures, right? And so you could scroll through and see pics of me and Heather and our kids at Disneyland and at Pismo Beach. You could see pictures of Central Coast Meat Market and that picture of the brisket that I took. And I look at it and I'm like, oh, thank you, Jesus. You see pictures of Texas and Oklahoma. You see pictures of those wonderful biscuits and gravy that I had at the spoon trade a while back. You would find all kinds of pictures on my phone, but you wouldn't find any pics. You wouldn't find any pictures of me screaming at my kids. You wouldn't find any pictures of Heather rolling her eyes at me because she married an idiot. <laughs> You wouldn't find a picture of me and Heather arguing with one another before church. I have pictures in my albums on my iPhone of the more sanitized aspects of my life. Not the mess, not the crud, not the sin. So understand this, photo albums never tell the truth. Instagram never tells the truth. Why? Because we love to live in the myth, don't we? We love to live in the myth. I don't know if you remember, there was a commercial years ago where there's a, a dad who took a picture. He was, the wife, the mom was gone on a business trip and the dad was home with three or four kids and he took a picture of this like spaghetti dinner and, and texted it to her. And she was like, oh, it's so, look what you did. You made the kids dinner. And you pan back the camera and there's spaghetti hanging from the ceiling, <laughs> sauce everywhere, dishes and everything. But he kind of captures that moment. Why? Because we love to live in the myth. All photo albums are liars. Every little album I have on my iPhone is a lie. We love them, but we would rather live in myth. The sad part of the history of Christianity is that you usually get the photo album version. You usually get the Instagram version of the history of Christianity. All the high points, all the good parts... The history of Christianity is very wonderful, but it is also very dirty. It's very messy. So we're going to do our best to look at our history honestly. We're going to look, and eventually we might get there and say, at least wrestle with the question, why did Jonathan Edwards, probably the greatest mind of any American theologian and pastor, absolutely incredible brain and ability to put deep concepts together. Why did he spend 12 to 14 hours locked away in a room by himself studying? Why did he not come out and spend more time with his family? Why did he wear a powdered wig? That's what I want to ask him, because everybody did. Why did men wear powdered wigs? I want to go to them and say, why did you wear powdered wigs? Why did he purchase and own slaves? Why did many of the Puritans and, and others, why did they own slaves? These are questions that I want to ask, at least wrestle with. So our history is messy and it's dirty. And I don't want us to paint a picture in here of just having this you know, well-manicured uh, 
history that we're looking at and ignoring some problems that are there. We want to look at them. We don't want to criticize them. We just want to use them as mirrors because they can't change. Jonathan Edwards can't change. I'm not going to throw him under the bus for purchasing slaves and owning slaves. Now, he was very kind and gentle with slaves. They were part of the family. They taught his kids. It wasn't like you see later on in American history. But still, I want to know. But I'm not going to throw him under the bus and criticize him. I just want to use him then as a mirror and say, how can his weaknesses, how can his mess, how can his sin change us? How can it affect me? So we want to do our best to look at our history honestly. Questions or comments? There's no homework. Okay, you can just show up each week. No homework. We just want to come and be a community and learn from history and see how we can change. So uh, I'm going to do my best every night to wrap by 7 because there is child care and we don't want to overwork them beyond. So we're wrapping up a few minutes early, but just remember there is no class on June 30th. There is no class on July 7th. Okay. Final questions or comments? Anyone? Mike? Uh, I think I like listening to uh, your just transparency with what you're going to be addressing because it reminds us that while we have a very rich and um, uh, beautiful history as, as a church, there's also when you said those dark spots um, and it reminds us, even like Jonathan Edwards, who's who, who one of the greatest American minds, uh, he had blind spots, he had, you know, but it reminds us that, hey, we love our brothers and we appreciate their um, contribution to our faith, but at the end of the day, our hope's in Christ, our hope's in Jesus. Yeah. And I'm not setting you up to... Uh I'm not setting you up to say, well, Benji's saying that because he's got blind spots and he's a mess and I need to love him. But I do ask you to do that because I can freely admit that I have blind spots and I have weaknesses and I have mess and sin and I'm not the best pastor. Uh, And so I am sharing that just to say we're all this way. And so in community, we can love one another and say we're all we've all been damaged by Adam's sin. We're all in process. We're all learning what you believe about a particular topic right now. In 20 years, you may change your opinion on that. Okay, we're all a mess. Somehow Jesus still loves us. And so we want to look at his family through church history as we make our way. So, any other final questions or comments? I'll see another hand. Can you tell us we can talk about it each week ahead of time so we can read ahead? Yes. Uh, next week, we're still going to be doing laying some groundwork, uh, some foundation, looking at what is revelation, what is theology, and then towards the end of that class, we may start looking at kind of picking up at the tail end of like when the New Testament was written, looking at the Judaizers, and then I think I'm probably hitting vacation by then. And by the time I come back at, with vacation, hopefully we'll land at about uh, 100 A.D. or so and start looking at Ignatius and uh, Clement, First Clement, a letter, and looking at the problems of the early church. So that's kind of where I'm thinking I'm going. Um, if I didn't have the clock to worry about, we, I could cover everything I need to cover and then move on. So we, it, it timed out perfectly today. So that's kind of where we're going to go. We're going to look next week um, at Revelation and theology. We're going to look at terms like uh, inerrancy, 
We're going to look at the relationship that, that we all have with truth. What's God's relationship with truth? What's our relationship with truth? We're going to look at changes in our beliefs. Um, things like that. Uh, we're going to look at the trinity of evangelical terms. Uh, you know, evangelicalism has its own trinity. I'm not going to tell you. You have to come back next week and understand. What is Western American evangelicalism? What is the trinity? Not, not we Obviously, we believe in God the Father and the Son and the Spirit. But what is the trinity of Western evangelical Christianity? We have a trinity uh, that's a part of our methodology and what we believe. And so we're going to talk about that next week and kick it a little, okay? So come back for that. Would somebody please pray for us uh, as we end? And remember, it's Pentecost Sunday. Somebody ask the Holy Spirit to help us uh, learn and grow and change. Anybody? Dear Lord, we. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be able to look into church history and uh, thank you for Benji uh, preparing and presenting it to us, Lord. And, uh, we ask you for your uh, grace to come down upon us, Lord, through your spirit, Lord. Now, on this Pentecost Sunday, and may we go with your blessing, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for coming. See you next week.